This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, This month's show was inspired by my youngest brother and the amateur Commedia dell'arte troupe, the Golden Stag Players, that he performs with. Every winter, they adapt a play to perform, and this year they chose John Lilly's Galathea, first performed on New Year's Day in 1588 before Queen Elizabeth I of England and her court. This play is very near and dear to my heart for reasons that will become obvious. One of the reasons the Golden Stag Players chose it, <coughs> on my recommendation, <coughs> is the predominance of female characters, somewhat unusually for an Elizabethan play, but desirable for a modern acting troupe that skews heavily female. This casting challenge played out somewhat differently among the all-male theater companies of the Elizabethan era, and one always wonders how much of the gender play on stage at the time was influenced by the tangled layers of sexual identities and roles that performances required. Gender disguise and its consequences are the very heart of Galathea. So next week, I'll be part of a select, pandemic-constrained studio audience for the Golden Stag Players' performance of Galathea. In the meantime, we can tour through the plot and the unexpected treatment of same-sex love within it. When a video of the performance is available, I'll link it in the transcript notes. John Lilly's play, Galathea, is one of the many adaptations of the tale of Iphis and Ianthe, first known from the writings of Ovid in the first century CE. In Ovid's tale, Iphis's mother conceals her gender at birth and raises her as a boy to avoid her father's threat of infanticide. Iphis and her childhood companion, Ianthe, fall in love, and the two families are delighted to look forward to their marriage, except for Iphis's mother, who knows that marriage would reveal her ruse, and except for Iphis, who believes that love between two women, by which we understand sex and marriage, is an impossibility. Ovid's work is dominated by Iphis's philosophical and emotional inner monologue over her dilemma. In the end, Iphis and her mother appeal to the goddess Isis for assistance. Isis magically changes Iphis into a boy, and all live happily ever after. Every adaptation after that has put its own spin onto the tale emphasizing some parts, downplaying others, adding in new elements. If you want a survey of those variants, check out my podcast on the topic. Lily kept the central gender disguise element, but gave it a different motivation, involving a looming human sacrifice of a beautiful maiden, and then doubled the gender disguise, giving us two women, both masquerading as men, each falling in love with the other. There are several subplots as well. The most relevant one is an ongoing feud between, on the one side, Cupid and the followers of the goddess Venus, who are all about romantic love, and on the other side, the followers of the goddess Diana, who reject romantic love. There's also a comic side plot involving three journeymen exploring new careers, who periodically meet to compare experiences. The comic plot only intersects the main story at a couple of points, and I've left it out of today's show. 
the Golden Stag players have left it out for similar reasons, but also because it somewhat doubles the playing time of the show. There are a lot of nuances of meaning embedded in this play. If you like, you can follow up on some of them in the books and articles blogged for our website, linked in the show notes. I'll mostly be focusing today on a plot summary and a dramatization of some of the more interesting scenes. We start off introducing the setting and backstory. The father of Galatea, one of our protagonists, brings her to a tree dedicated to the god Neptune and tells her the history of a particular religious festival. There had been a great marble temple there, but the inhabitants dismantled the temple, angering the god. Neptune caused the seas to threaten to overwhelm the land, and when the people begged him to relent, he imposed a harsh condition. As Galathea's father explains, The condition was this, that at every five years' day, the fairest and chastest virgin in all the country should be brought unto this tree, and here being bound, whom neither parentage shall excuse for honor nor virtue for integrity, is left as a peace offering unto Neptune. He sendeth a monster called the Agar, against whose coming the waters roar, the fowls fly away, and the cattle in the field for terror shun the banks. Whether she be devoured of him, or conveyed to Neptune, or drowned between both, it is not permitted to know, and incurreth danger to conjecture. Now, Galathea, here endeth my tale, and beginneth thy tragedy. But why, Galathea asks, is this a tragedy for her? Because, of course, he believes her to be the fairest and chastest virgin in the land. And rather than lose his daughter, he plans to save her with a trick. Galathea is far more noble than her father and protests, Destiny may be deferred, not prevented, and therefore it were better to offer myself in triumph than to be drawn to it with dishonor. Hath nature, as you say, made me so fair above all, and shall not virtue make me as famous as others? Do you not know, or doth overcarefulness make you forget, that an honorable death is to be preferred before an infamous life? I am but a child, and have not lived long, and yet not so childish as I desire to live ever. Virtues I mean to carry to my grave, not gray hairs. I would I were as sure that destiny would light on me as I am resolved it could not fear me. Nature hath given me beauty, virtue, courage. Nature must yield me death, virtue, honor. Suffer me, therefore, to die, for which I was born, or let me curse that I was born, since I may not die for it. But his response is that she's too young to know what she's talking about and should follow his advice and disguise herself to escape her fate. In the second scene, the gods come on stage in the form of Cupid and a follower of Diana, goddess of the hunt and of virginity. Cupid teases her, asking if there are any among the followers of Diana who know the sweetness of love. But Cupid's description of love doesn't make it sound very appealing. A heat full of coldness, a sweet full of bitterness, a pain full of pleasantness, which maketh thoughts have eyes and hearts ears, bred by desire, nursed by delight, weaned by jealousy, killed by dissembling, buried by ingratitude. And this is love, fair lady. Will you any? Diana's nymph rejects Cupid's version of love with a speech that makes a number of puns between the word heart, meaning the seat of love, and heart, meaning a stag to be hunted, as well as wordplay contrasting following the chase and also being chaste. 
I have neither will nor leisure, but I will follow Diana in the chase, whose virgins are all chaste, delighting in the bow that wounds the swift heart in the forest, not fearing the bow that strikes the soft heart in the chamber. This difference is between my mistress, Diana, and your mother, as I guess, Venus, that all her nymphs are amiable and wise in their kind, the other amorous and too kind for their sex. And so, farewell, little god. Cupid gets his nose out of joint at being so dismissed, and vows, Diana, and thou and all thine shall know that Cupid is a great god. I will practice a while in these woods and play such pranks with these nymphs that while they aim to hit others with their arrows, they shall be wounded themselves with their own eyes. Cupid's arrows, of course, cause people to fall in love. If Diana's followers reject love, he'll force them to experience it. In the next scene, we meet the second protagonist, Philida. She, too, is being instructed by her father to avoid being chosen as the sacrifice to Neptune by disguising herself. Come, Felita, fair Felita, and I fear me too fair being my Felita, though knowest the custom of this country, and I the greatness of thy beauty, we both the fierceness of the monster Agar. Every one thinketh his own child fair, but I know that which I most desire and would least have, that thou art fairest. Thou shalt therefore disguise thyself in attire, lest I should disguise myself in affection, in suffering thee to perish by a fond desire whom I may preserve by a sure deceit. When Felita asks for details, we come to a crux of the internal conflicts that both Galathea and Felita will experience. They don't want to disguise themselves as men. The thought embarrasses them, and further, they are doubtful of their ability to pass convincingly. Here, Felita protests in vain. Dear father, nature could not make me so fair as she hath made you kind, nor you more kind than me dutiful. Whatsoever you command, I will not refuse, because you command nothing but my safety and your happiness. But how shall I be disguised? In man's apparel. It will neither become my body nor my mind. Why, Felita? For then I must keep company with boys and commit follies unseemly for my sex, or keep company with girls and be thought more wanton than becometh me. Besides, I shall be ashamed of my long hose and short coat, and so unwarily blab out something by blushing at everything. Fear not, Felida. Use will make it easy. Fear must make it necessary. I agree, since my father will have it so, and fortune must. Galathea and Felita, now both disguised as men, are wandering in the forest. The same forest where Cupid and Diana's followers are roaming. Here, the two women meet, in a conversation that involves more private asides than dialogue meant for the other to hear. Galathea tells herself, Blush, Galathea, that must frame thy affection fit for thy habit, and therefore be thought immodest because thou art unfortunate. Thy tender years cannot dissemble this deceit, nor thy sex bear it. Oh, would the gods had made me as I seem to be, or that I might safely be what I seem not. Thy father doteth, Galathea, whose blind love corrupteth his fond judgment, and jealous of thy death seemeth to dote on thy beauty, whose fond care carrieth his partial eye as far from truth as his heart is from falsehood. But why dost thou blame him, or blab what thou art? One, thou shouldst only counterfeit what thou art not. But whist, here cometh a lad. I will learn of him how to behave myself. 
Felida enters and mutters to herself, I neither like my gait nor my garments, the one untoward, the other unfit, both unseemly. Oh, Felida, but yonder stayeth one, and therefore say nothing. But, oh, Felida. Galathea, overhearing this, notes, I perceive that boys are in as great disliking of themselves as maids. Therefore, though I wear the apparel, I am glad I am not the person. Felita spots her and immediately notes Galathea's gender ambiguity, but, assuming she is a man, thinks to learn from her how to behave as one. It is a pretty boy and a fair. He might well have been a woman, but because he is not, I am glad I am, for now, under the color of my coat, I shall decipher the follies of their kind. Again, Galathea. I would salute him, but I fear I should make a curtsy instead of a leg. Neither of them is directly addressing the other yet. Felita thinks, If I durst trust my face as well I do my habit, I would spend some time to make pastime. For say what they will of a man's wit, it is no second thing to be a woman. And Galathea thinks something very odd. All the blood in my body would be in my face if he should ask me, as the question among men is common, are you a maid? Well, do men really ask each other this? How odd. Just as it seems they must finally speak to each other, they are interrupted by the appearance of Diana and two of her followers, as Felita notes, Why stand I still? Boys should be bold. But here cometh a brave train that will spoil all our talk. Diana addresses Galathea as fair boy, which she denies, but then scrambles to explain that she rejects the fair part, not the boy part. There is more wordplay when the nymphs ask after the deer they were following, meaning the animal, but Galathea says, I saw none but mine own deer, meaning beloved, which feels a bit ahead of the game as she hasn't fallen in love with Felita quite yet. When the nymphs address Felita as shepherd lad, she too protests and then backpedals, explaining, My mother said I could be no lad till I was twenty year old, nor keep sheep till I could tell them. And therefore, lady, neither lad nor shepherd is here. Both women are refusing to accept the incorrect gender identity, but use wordplay to avoid acknowledging their preferred gender. Diana demands that they accompany the hunt, and Felita agrees, saying to herself, I am willing to go, not for these ladies' company, because myself am a virgin, but for that fair boy's favor, who I think be a god. There are two interesting things to note here. Normally, Diana's band is restricted to women. Does her acceptance of the disguised Galathea and Felida mean that she sees through their disguises? But I also wonder if Felida's comment on Galathea, who I think to be a god, is a deliberate echo of Sappho's poem 31. Sappho's work, either in the original Greek or Latin translation, was being republished by Lily's time and English poets were reworking bits of her themes, although an English translation of the poems themselves was yet to be published. So it's certainly a possibility. Diana and the group exit. Then Cupid takes the stage, disguised as a nymph of Diana, and proclaims his bwahaha style villain speech, speaking of himself in the third person, and once again having fun with puns on hearts and the chaste. Cupid will cause the nymphs to fall in love, but very specifically, He'll force them to fall in love with, quote, their own sex, unquote, believing this to be a double revenge as they will desire impossibilities. 
Now, Cupid, under the shape of a silly girl, show the power of a mighty god. Let Diana and all her coy nymphs know there, there is no heart so chaste but thy bow can wound, nor eyes so modest but thy brands can kindle, nor thoughts so stayed but thy shafts can make wavering, weak, and wanton. Cupid, though he be a child, is no baby. I will make their pains my pastimes, and so confound their loves in their own sex that they shall dote in their desires, delight in their affections, and practice only impossibilities. Whilst I truant from my mother, I will use some tyranny in these woods, and so shall their exercise in foolish love be my excuse for running away. I will see whether fair faces be always chaste, or Diana's virgins only modest. Else I will spend both my shafts and shifts, and then, ladies, if you see these dainty dames entrapped in love, say softly to yourselves, we may all love. Oh, and by the way, Neptune is overhearing all this, and lets on that he's quite aware that Galathea and Felita are women disguised as men in order to trick him out of his sacrifice. But he plans to wait and watch and have the last word in the end. We return to our heroines, each of whom wanders across the stage, explaining that she has been falling in love with the other, and bemoaning that they can't do anything about it due to being in disguise as a man. I should note at this point that Felita is using the male name Melebius, and Galathea the name Titerus. First Galathea. How now, Galathea, miserable Galathea, that having put on the apparel of a boy, thou canst also put on the mind? O oh, fair Melebius! I too fair, and therefore I fear too proud. Had it not been better for thee to have been a sacrifice to Neptune than a slave to Cupid? To die for thy country than to live in thy fancy? To be a sacrifice than a lover? Oh, would when I hunted his eye with my heart, he might have seen my heart with his eyes. Why did nature to him a boy give a face so fair, or to me a virgin a fortune so hard? I will now use for the distaff the bow, and play it quite so broad, that was wont to sew in my sampler at home. It may be, Galathea, foolish Galathea, what may be? Nothing. Let me follow him into the woods, and thou, sweet Venus, be my guide. Then Felida, poor Felida, curse the time of thy birth, and rareness of thy beauty, the unaptness of thy apparel, and the untamedness of thy affections. Art thou no sooner in the habit of a boy, but thou must be enamoured of a boy? What shalt thou do, when what best liketh thee, most discontenteth thee? Go into the woods, watch the good times, his best moods, and transgress in love a little of thy modesty. I will, I dare not, thou must, I cannot, then pine in thine own peevishness. I will not, I will. Ah, Felida, do something, nay, anything, rather than live thus. Well, what I will do, myself knows not, but what I ought I know too well, and so I go resolute, either to betray my love or suffer shame. In the meantime, Cupid has done his work. The nymph Telusa has been struck by Cupid's arrow and fallen in love with the disguised Felida, as Melebius. There's a double game going on here, because we know from Cupid's speech that he knows Felida slash Melebius's female gender, and that's part of his spite. But Telusa thinks she's fallen in love with a man, where both the experience of love and the target of her affection are forbidden to a follower of Diana. How oh, now, what new conceits, what strange contraries breed in thy mind? Is thy Diana become a Venus, 
thy chaste thoughts turn to wanton looks, thy conquering modesty to a captive imagination? Beginnest thou with Peralis to die in the air and live in the fire, to leave the sweet delight of hunting and to follow the hot desire of love? O oh, Telusa, these words are unfit for thy sex being a virgin, but apt for thy affections being a lover. And can there, in years so young, in education so precise, in vows so holy, and in a heart so chaste, enter either a strong desire or a wish or a wavering thought of love? Can Cupid's brands quench Vesta's flames, and his feeble shafts headed with feathers pierce deeper than Diana's arrows headed with steel? Break thy bow, Telusa, that seekest to break thy vow, and let these hands that aim to hit the wild heart scratch out those eyes that have wounded thy tame heart. O vain and only naked name of chastity that is made eternal and perished by time, holy and is infected by fancy, divine and is made mortal by folly, Virgin's hearts, I perceive, are not unlike cotton trees, whose fruit is so hard in the bud that it soundeth like steel, and being ripe, for poureth forth nothing but wool. And their thoughts, like the leaves of lunary, which the further they grow from the sun, the sooner they are scorched with his beams. O Melibius, because thou art fair, must I be fickle, and false my vow because I see thy virtue? Fond girl that I am to think of love, Nay, vain profession that I follow to disdain love. But here cometh Eurota. I must now put on a red mask and blush, lest she perceive my pale face and laugh. Her fellow nymph Eurota shows up, who has similarly been induced to fall in love with Galathea in disguise as the man Titerus. The two end up comparing notes on their dilemma. Eurota acknowledges, I confess that I am in love, and yet swear that I know not what it is. I feel my thoughts unknit, mine eyes unstayed, my heart I know not how affected or infected, my sleep's broken and full of dreams, my wakeness sad and full of sighs, myself in all things unlike myself. If this be love, I would it had never been devised. Toulouse counters, Thou hast told what I am in uttering what thyself is. These are my passions, Eurota, my unbiled passions, my intolerable passions, which I were as good acknowledge and crave counsel as to deny and endure peril. How did it take you first, Telusa? By the eyes, my wanton eyes, which conceived the picture of his face and hanged it on the very strings of my heart. O fair Melibius, O fond Telusa, but how did it take you, Eurota? By the ears, whose sweet words sunk so deep in my head, that the remembrance of his wit hath bereaved me of my wisdom. O eloquent Titerus, O credulous Eurota, but soft, here cometh Ramia, but let her not hear us talk. We will withdraw ourselves and hear her talk. Ramia, another nymph, relates how all the rest of Diana's followers are similarly stricken with love for the disguised women. If myself felt only this infection, I would then take upon me the definition. But being incident to so many, I dare not myself describe it. But we will all talk of that in the woods. Diana stormeth that sending one to seek another, she loseth all. Servia of all the nymphs, the coyest, loveth deadly, and exclaimeth, claimeth against Diana, honoreth Venus, detesteth Vesta, and maketh a common scorn of virtue. Clymene, whose stately looks seem to amaze the greatest lords, stoopeth, yieldeth, and fawneth on the strange boy in the woods. Myself, with blushing I speak it, am thrall to that boy, that fair boy, that beautiful boy. They bemoan, would I were no woman, would Titerus were no boy, 
which of course he actually isn't. But now, Felita and Galathea are confessing their love for each other, dancing around the problem that each of them believes the other a man, but dare not confess that she is a woman. Let's follow the conversation. First Felita, then Galathea. Distinguished in voice, since you only have myself on the stage. It is a pity that nature framed you not a woman, having a face so fair, so lovely a countenance, so modest a behavior. There is a tree in Tylos, whose nuts have shells like fire, and being cracked, the kernel is but water. What a toy is it to tell me of that tree, being nothing to the purpose? I say, it is pity you are not a woman. I would not wish to be a woman, unless it were because thou art a man. Nay, I do not wish to be a woman, for then I should not love thee, for I have sworn never to love a woman. A strange humor in so pretty a youth, and according to mine, for myself will never love a woman. It were a shame if a maiden should be a suitor, a thing hated in that sex, that thou shouldst deny to be her servant. If it be a shame in me, it can be no commendation in you, for yourself is of that mind. Suppose I were a virgin, I blush in supposing myself one, and that under the habit of a boy were the person of a maid. If I should utter my affection with sighs, manifest my sweet love by my salt tears, and prove my loyalty unspotted and my griefs intolerable, would not then that fair face pity this true heart? Admit that I were, as you would have me suppose that you are, and that I should, with entreaties, prayers, oaths, bribes, and whatever can be invented in love, desire your favor, would you not yield? Tush, you come in with admit, and you with suppose. What doubtful speeches be these? I fear me, he is as I am, a maiden. What dread riseth in my mind? I fear the boy to be as I am, a maiden. Tush, it cannot be. His voice shows the contrary. Yet I do not think it, for he would then have blushed. Have you a sister? If I had but one, my brother must needs have two. But, I pray, have you ever a one? My father had but one daughter, and therefore I could have no sister. I me, he is as I am, for his speeches be as mine are. What shall I do? Either he is subtle, or my sex simple. I have known divers of Diana's nymphs enamored of him, yet hath he rejected all, either as too proud to disdain, or too childish not to understand, or for that he knoweth himself to be a virgin. I am in a quandary. Diana's nymphs have followed him, and he despised them, either knowing too well the beauty of his own face, or that himself is of the same mold. I will once again try him. You promised me in the woods that you would love me before all Diana's nymphs. Aye, so you would love me before all Diana's nymphs. Can you prefer a fond boy as I am before so fair ladies as they are? Why should not I as well as you? Come, let us into the grove and make much one of another that cannot tell what to think one of another. And then they exit, presumably to go make much of one another off stage. Meanwhile, Diana has discovered the to-do among her nymphs and instantly suspects the strange nymph, that is, Cupid, who has been seen wandering in the woods. What news have we here, ladies? Are all in love? 
Are Diana's nymphs become Venus's wantons? Is it a shame to be chaste because you be amiable? Or must you needs be amorous because you are fair? O oh, Venus, if this be thy spite, I will require it with more than hate. Well shalt thou know what it is to drib thine arrows up and down Diana's lees. There is an unknown nymph that straggleth up and down these woods, which I suspect hath been the weaver of these woes. I saw her slumbering by the brookside. Go, search her, and bring her. If you find upon her shoulder a burn, it is Cupid. If any print on her back like a leaf, it is Medea. If any picture on her left breast like a bird, it is Calypso. Whoever it be, bring her hither, and speedily bring her hither. She scolds her ladies for abandoning chastity and honor for the court of Venus. And when Cupid is captured and brought before her, Diana takes her revenge on him. And thou shalt see, Cupid, that I will show myself to be Diana, that is, conqueror of thy loose and untamed appetites. Did thy mother Venus, under the color of a nymph, send thee hither to wound my nymphs? Doth she add craft to her malice, and to mistrusting her deity, practice deceit? Is there no place but my groves, no persons but my nymphs? Cruel and unkind Venus, that spiteth only chastity, thou shalt see that Diana's power shall revenge thy policy, and tame this pride. As for thee, Cupid, I will break thy bow, and burn thy arrows, bind thy hands, clip thy wings, and fetter thy feet. Thou that fattest other with hopes, shall be fed thyself with wishes, and thou that bindest others with golden thoughts, shall be bound thyself with golden fetters. Venus's rods are made of roses, Diana's of briars. Let Venus, that great goddess, ransom Cupid, that little god. These ladies here, whom thou hast infected with foolish love, shall both tread on thee and triumph over thee. Thine own arrow shall be shot into thine own bosom, and thou shalt be enamored not on Psyche's, but on Circe's. I will teach thee what it is to displease Diana, distress her nymphs, or disturb her game. Now we return to the problem of the sacrifice to Neptune. The fathers of Galathea and Philida point fingers at each other. You boasted of having a fair and chaste daughter, each says to the other. Where is she now? And each answers, alas, my daughter died long ago. Meanwhile, Neptune is biding his time to see how far they'll go. Galathea and Philida resume their verbal jousting, this time regarding which of them would have been the appropriate sacrifice had they been a maiden. I marvel what virgin the people will present. It is happy that you are none, for then it would have fallen to your lot, because you are so fair. If you had been a maiden too, I need not have feared, because you are fairer. I pray thee, sweet boy, flatter me not, speak truth of thyself, for in mine eye of all the world thou art fairest. These be fair words, but far from thy true thoughts. I know mine own face in a true glass, and desire not to see it in a flattering mouth. I would I did flatter thee, and that fortune would not flatter me. I love thee as a brother, but love not me so. No, I will not, but love thee better, because I cannot love as a brother. Seeing we are both boys, and both lovers, that our affection may have some show, and seem as it were love, let me call thee mistress. I accept that name, for divers before have called me mistress. For what cause? Nay, there lie the mistress. Will not you be at the sacrifice? No. Why? Because I dreamt 
that if I were there, I should be turned to a virgin, and then, being so fair as thou sayest I am, I should be offered as thou knowest one must. Will not you be there? Not unless I were sure that a boy might be sacrificed and not a maiden. Why, then you are in danger. But I would escape it by deceit. But seeing we are resolved to both be absent, let us wander into these groves till the hour be past. I am agreed, for then my fear will be past. Why, what dost thou fear? Nothing but that you love me not. With that, Galathea exits, leaving Felita to worry over her growing certainty that she has fallen in love with a woman in disguise. Poor Felita, what shouldst thou think of thyself, that lovest one that I fear me is as thyself is? And may it not be that her father practiced the same deceit with her that my father hath with me? And knowing her to be fair, feared she should be unfortunate? If it be so, Felita, how desperate is thy case? If it be not, how doubtful. For if she be a maiden, there is no hope of my love. If a boy, a hazard, I will after him or her and lead a melancholy life that look for a miserable death. The people have found a maiden to sacrifice, who rages against the praxis of sacrificing someone in the promise of youth, while also noting that she knows she is not the fairest in the land and that it's totally unfair that she has to be sacrificed. And then, on top of that, the monster that's supposed to carry off the sacrifice doesn't show up because she's not good enough. She is rejected and humiliated. Galathea and Felita encounter her as she flees and worry about what's going on. They hear the assembled gods approaching and hide to overhear. Neptune rages that since the humans refuse to offer their chaste daughters, he'll slaughter all the maidens in the land and make it a shame to be a virgin. Diana shows up all, hey, let's not get too hasty. Why should my followers be punished for being virtuous and chaste? Then Venus steps in, saying, You go get him, Neptune. Let's go after these coy bitches who are torturing my poor innocent boy Cupid. You make Diana give him back. The goddesses argue, Diana calling Venus unruly and the causer of quarrels, Venus calling Diana a hater, and Neptune going all, Whoa, I don't want to be in the middle of this. So he offers to rescind his vengeance against chaste virgins if Diana releases Cupid back to his mother. Deal, says Diana. Now, the fathers of our two heroines show up to apologize to Neptune and admit the deception. Where are your daughters, he asks. Why, there they are, coming now. Here's my daughter, Felita, one says, and here's my daughter, Galathea, says the other. The two women face each other, their secret fears confirmed. Unfortunate Galathea, if this be Felita. Accursed Felita, if that be Galathea. And wast thou all this while enamored of Felita? that sweet Felita? And couldst thou dote upon the face of a maiden, thyself being one, on the face of fair Galathea? The answer, of course, being, yeah, duh. Neptune asks, do you both, being maidens, love one another? They answer again in the affirmative. Diana, not being attuned to the power of love, tells them, no, Things falling out as they do, you must leave these fond affections. Nature will have it so. Necessity must. Galathea protests, I will never love any but Felita. Her love is engraven in my heart with her eyes. And Felita, Nor I any but Galathea, whose faith is imprinted in my thoughts by her words. This is a moment that makes John Lilly's play a marvel for its age. Two female characters knowing each other to be women, 
declare their romantic love for each other in public and swear they will never love anyone else. Neptune can't quite get his brain around how this is possible, but Venus is totally on their side. I like well and allow it. They shall both be possessed of their wishes, for never shall it be said that nature or fortune shall overthrow love and faith. Is your loves unspotted, begun with truth, continued with constancy, and not to be altered till death? Galathea vows, Die, Galathea, if thy love be not so. Similarly, Felida, Accursed be thou, Felida, if thy love be not so. Uh, so, now what? Diana asks. Well, says Venus, I can turn one of them into a man. What is to love, or the mistress of love, unpossible? Was it not Venus that did the like to Iphis and Ianthe? How say ye, are ye agreed, one to be a boy presently? Felida answers, I am content, so I may embrace Galathea. Galathea agrees, I wish it, so I may enjoy Felida. In the original tale of Iphis and Ianthe, which Venus just referenced, the two were differentiated by gender performance. Iphis having been raised all her life as a boy, and Iantha always identifying as a girl. But Galathea breaks with the source material and offers a different scenario. Both Galathea and Felida consistently identify as women. They express either interest in or acceptance of a male identity only as the means of having their relationship made possible and acceptable. And even when gender change is offered, neither has a preference to be the one who becomes a man. Their fathers, on the other hand, immediately start quarreling over which one of them gets to continue having a daughter, because it's all about them, right? But in the end, all agree to leave the choice in the hands of Venus. Then let us depart. Neither of them shall know whose lot it shall be till they come to the church door. One shall be. Doth it suffice? Galathea gets the final speech, urging all women to yield to love and allow their hearts to be conquered. This is an ambiguous message since her heart was conquered by love for a woman. At the final curtain, the transformation is yet to come. In that eternal moment, Galathea and Felida remain women in love with women, and so they will always be for me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.